Blog Talk Radio. Talk Radio, where we talk about all sorts of things like technology and business, politics, and culture. This is Donia Keating. I'm your host, coming to you live from the Seattle area at about 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Thursday, April 16th. Listeners, dial 646-378-0261. We'll patch you right in for on-air live questions or comments, and raise your hand by pressing 1 on your keypad, and there's a chat option as well, but you might want to open up a Blog Talk Radio account. It's free and it's fun, and it might make things a little bit easier for you. So we haven't been on the air since our leadership broadcast, probably about uh, mid to late March. Some of it has to do with trying to reconfigure the format and deciding if we want it to be weekly no matter what's going on or we just want to take things down a notch, go with the flow based on topics and people that we're interested in. And uh, another aspect of this is that we receive so many messages from you guys asking us to do a show based on a headline or a topic or whatever. And by the time we line up a guest who's usually a VIP, you know, you've, you've kind of moved on to the next uh, subject or next headline, and it's it's like we're playing catch-up. So when we started this project, we said we wanted it to be relevant and uh, impactful and not just talking for the sake of talking, and we didn't want to chase headlines. We wanted it to be meaningful. So it's kind of uh, one of those things that we're doing to uh, reevaluate. And then another thing we discovered is that we talked to a lot of other hosts that have higher listener or download numbers like ours, and people don't want to they either don't view podcasts as important, quote-unquote, um, compared to a big radio show. And so they'll say they're going to call in and chat about a subject with us, and then they don't show up. So, you know, on the flip side of that, we understand that, you know, they feel vulnerable um, or if we're going to, you know, like we're going to ambush them or something, or they, maybe they're worried um, about not being quick enough on their feet in a forum where you just can't really easily edit or delete out what you said like you do when you vent on Facebook. So we get that. Um, however, we're kind of straight shooters here. We're not afraid to ask tough questions, but we're not really in the business of trying to put people on the spot or shame them. We just want to get to the point, uh, and we like to be straightforward about that. So anyhow, this afternoon, we've decided to do kind of a quick update on some of the subjects that some of you said you wanted to hear about. And uh, it looks like it will mostly be host thoughts unless someone calls in or sends a chat comment that we can cartwheel from. So we'll sign off whenever I'm done. And uh, so let's go. First topic. Uh Probably not as sexy as religious freedom, uh, which we'll probably get to uh, later if there's enough time in the show, but crowdfunding is the first topic. We've received several comments about folks being inundated with something like GoFundMe or similar type campaigns, and it didn't matter if it was for a funeral or medical expenses or a business venture. didn't seem to matter. But the gist of the feedback was that it's, it's you know, crowdfunding is killing innovation or um, because it's so easy to just slap up a campaign, it's kind of diminishing our work ethic. So some background thoughts on crowdfunding uh, for a sec. It's been around since the 17th century, really, if you think about it, because it's nothing more than the practice of collecting small donations from a large group of people and then, you know, giving them to those people. And back then, there were artists and musicians who used it to support themselves. And even the Statue of Liberty, as an example, was a beneficiary of crowdfunding, quote-unquote, per se, because the committee that was in charge of funding it ran out of cash. 
and Joe Pulitzer used his newspaper, which was then the New York World, to request those donations, and they ended up raising about $100,000 in six months, which doesn't seem like a lot these days with what people are able to raise, but it was, um, you know, the American dollar was worth a lot more back then, of course. So uh, in 2000, the first American, the first major one, I should say, crowdfunding site was ArtistShare. And then that was followed by Indiegogo and Kickstarter and things like GoFundMe. So many more out there, obviously, but uh, some of the most familiar and popular ones are the ones that we mentioned. And the way they work is you submit a project, and it doesn't cost you to do that typically, but all of them will charge something, some percentage of the funds that you raise. So I think 5% is the average, and and Indiegogo is about 9% if you don't reach your goal. Kickstarter supposedly doesn't, but they're stricter on the parameters of your project and your fundraising duration. Uh, Some sites require you to provide some kind of gift for your donors based on the level of their donation, which obviously motivates your your people to give more. But as with anything, uh, you start it off, it, it begins to change the landscape as it morphs, and most crowdfunding involves sponsoring creative projects or musical talents or entrepreneurs or charitable causes, but now you get them for ordinary things, personal financial goals. You know, some will use GoFundMe to finance their move to another state, you know, to buy a house. Some people are taking advantage of social media platforms to unashamedly broadcast their need for cash. And so, Legal in most cases, obviously, but it started to raise the question of how crowdfunding is being used to achieve personal savings goals in a way that signals a loss of initiative, a failure to plan, uh, a lack of desire to earn things the old, good old-fashioned way. So when you want to buy a home or make a purchase or you want to make sure your kids have access to an education or make sure you've taken care of your end-of-life issues or even emergencies, instead of saving in anticipation of that, you're just a few miles clicks away from getting the cash. So... The question also becomes how we've come to value our accomplishments, especially our upcoming generation when we're looking at them and the messages that we're sending them and if things are simply handed to them. So all of that being said, you know, kind of the discussion points that we had here when we were preparing this is that there are unplanned emergencies. We get that. Uh, the, the economy has been struggling. There's a saturated job market. Uh, student don't, loan debt is just you know, astronomical these days and some real hits that make things more challenging. But still – Learning the budget, learning to save, um, having a goal and working towards that goal. These are things that are very important still because crowdfunding isn't a crutch. And we tend to value things that we sacrifice for. So um, another comment that came in was that um, we live in different times, granted, and that those people are actually taking advantage of a tool to fund their goals faster and more efficiently. So it's more of a 21st century adaptability um, you know, premise. So, And then there's a question of who those funders are. So, I mean, as long as you've got, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, is is kind of the quote that we received. And if you've got funders that are willing to give the money to those people, then, you know, no harm, no foul, and what do we care? But obviously, I think that, you know, the subject was raised, and so the motivations of those people that are dancing in that relationship and the continuing implications of crowdfunding will continue to be discussed, I think, for some time to, to come. So I've gone on long enough about it, frankly. What do you think? If you have a chat comment you want to send to us or you want to follow up on our Facebook page, you can even send something on our Blog Talk Radio Station page where you comment, and it also you know goes to our Facebook page as well. So, um, But if there's no other thoughts on that, I'm just going to leave it where it is. Uh, topic number two, I'm going through the list here, is religious freedom. But I just got a new note that we're doing that as a separate show 
with some really, really interesting pro and con guest potentials. So, okay, that's, that works for me. Stay tuned uh, for that announcement, and I have some ideas as to who I'd want to, to do that topic, but um, I'll, I'll follow up with that later. So number three, that was, oh, the police shootings. Okay, so we've been hearing about these uh, where they're really amped up, these, these police officers, these cops, and they're killing you know suspects. Some of them presume, some of them actual, uh, sometimes for minor infractions. And, you know, it's a challenging situation, bottom line. Cops are afraid for their lives, and they're quick on the trigger. Some of them have been shot and killed. I mean, there's a history of that as well. Of course, some have preconceived notions. They have community fatigue, and it colors, you know, no pun intended, it colors their um, how they deal with those people. And so it's not always without cause, but you really don't want to end every approach with someone dead. That's not the goal, uh, if you can avoid that. And the flip side is what people don't want to talk about, and they tend to shout down in social media, and I've seen that, but it's this. No matter what your suspicions are about police and police brutality and their racism or their bigotry or the fact that they change the scene of the crime sometimes, what's clear here is that people have to stop running. They have to stop fighting. They have to stop confronting or resisting arrest. Uh, it doesn't mean that you lie there and take unwarranted brutality until you're dead or you're injured or whatever. I mean, there may be some fight or flight and, and thinking that that's going to happen, and I and I understand that. But if it's not front and center, just tone it down, you know, however you can. No one deserves to be shot in the back eight times for just running away. But don't run away because you have a warrant for a child support either. I mean, that's not worth dying for. Uh, there are no easy answers. I think people think that there are, uh, and they like to get into their staunch uh, pro and con positions. But the re- reality is that this is not an easy situation. And, you know, there's a history of how police have, have treated certain groups of people, and, and there needs to be more sensitivity training as well. But, of course, you know, again, I'm not someone that's running around with a gun all day trying to enforce the law. So, you know, just try to keep some, some perspective bleh, on that topic. Uh, and you know what? I actually have my own stories about this. I mean, I wasn't going to say anything about it, but I think I, I'm just going to go ahead and share a little bit of it. So one of them was a double date. So we were sitting in the car trying to figure out where we wanted to go. And both of our dates were white, and we weren't. They were our boyfriends, actually. And someone must have seen us parked. We were in Chicago in the Rush Street area. And someone must have seen us parked, and they called the police, or they either came of their own volition. I don't know. Either way. They asked us to get out of the car. And they questioned our boyfriends about how they knew us. And, you know, we were very elegantly and professionally dressed because we'd all met up after our respective jobs at work. And, you know, I was in the legal field, but it didn't seem to matter. So, but we we answered their questions and we went on with our evening. It wasn't like we had any confrontation. But, you know, the point of that is that it, it doesn't always matter if you're wearing a hoodie or if your pants are hanging down to your ankles. That's just the way some police officers are. Um Another situation was I was walking home from work, and me and a friend met up, and we picked up some beer because we were going to hang out and catch up once we got to my place. I lived on Lakeshore Drive in Chicago, which is a very ritzy area, and uh, we decided to cut through Oak Street Beach. It had rained like a day before or maybe even earlier that day, so there weren't many people out on the beach. Long story short, the cops stopped us, asked us what we were up to, and looked inside the bag, asked to look inside the bag. And again, we were dressed in suits and heels, nothing, you know, I had a briefcase even. And um, so they were going to write us up as having beer on the beach. So at that point, my friend sat there flabbergasted. But because I knew the law, I, I challenged them. Now, I was calm, and I was legally on point, but 
our punishment was being taken down to the station and inconvenienced and threatened with booking. And so by the time we did uh, get in front of the judge, he immediately threw the case out and scoffed at the police officers, who never even bothered to show up, by the way. Um, but it was an example of what can happen when you just don't get through these things without what's perceived as confrontation. And just another thought. We had a third instance on a recent trip to Chicago. What is it about Chicago? Anyway, we were on the highway in the suburbs on the way to visit a relative, and we had a rental SUV. It had New York plates on it, so I understand that they're probably thinking I'll be on the lookout for that. So, I mean, granted, kind of got to give them a little bit of that. But the state trooper was following us on both sides and behind us, even though we weren't doing anything. You know, a man and the woman and the child in the car. They pull us over. They ask my husband, who is white, to sit in the squad car, and he starts asking him all sorts of questions about our relationship and why were we in town and whether or not the child with us was ours and just stuff like that. Um, we were friendly. We weren't really phased by what he was doing because we knew we hadn't done anything wrong. We weren't really worried. But I think at the back of our minds, once it was over and we were kind of decompressing, we thought about, you know, there are many things that could have gone wrong there, uh, given a different reaction or even given a different officer. So, I'm not really just sitting in an ivory tower when I say stop running and fighting. I mean, I speak from experience regarding, you know, some of the things that could happen to you when you're going about your own business, you're not even doing anything wrong, you're dressed the right way, you're presenting yourself the right way, and you're still, you know, considered, uh, you know, a suspect, so to speak. So uh, what's the other topic, Christine? Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Okay, I think Charles sent this one. And I don't know if he's calling in today or not, but this is really kind of his his thing that got his, his goat because he's in the tech field. But this one is about 10 U.S. senators, and they're from both sides of the aisle, so it's not one of these partisan things, although that doesn't mean it's not political. But they are seeking a, a federal investigation into the displacement of IT workers by H-1B contractors. And so they're asking Department of Justice, Homeland Security, Labor Department, I think those are the three, to investigate the use of the H-1B program to replace large numbers of American workers. And this was at Southern uh, California Edison. But there are other employers involved, apparently. So their letter arrived at the same time that the lawmakers were pushing for a substantial increase in H-1B visas under the I-squared bill, which is legislation that would raise the H-1B cap. So two of the co-sponsors of the I-squared bill also signed the letter asking for an investigation into H-1B program practices. Now, the letter to um, Attorney General Holder was also sent to the secretaries of the other two departments, and it's signed by a, a lot of different senators. So it, it, I think uh, U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley, he is a Republican for Iowa. He's also the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which um, has oversight over the Justice Department. But the other signers are Senators Richard Durbin, who's a Democrat from Illinois, and he is a longtime ally um, of Grassley on the H-1B issue, so it's no surprise that he's there. Jeff Sessions is a Republican from Alabama. Uh, Richard Blumenthal is a Democrat from Connecticut. Um, Sherrod Brown, or Sherrod Brown, is a Democrat from Ohio, and uh, David Vitter, Republican from Louisiana, I think, and then Clara McCaskill, Democrat from um, Missouri. Bill Cassidy is a Republican from Louisiana also. And uh, Bernard Sanders is an independent from Vermont. And James Inhofe is a Republican from Oklahoma. So they're all there. None of the California senators have signed on to this. And uh, Sessions was saying that he felt Southern California Edison should be the tipping point that finally compels Washington to take needed actions to protect American workers. 
Um, and Blumenthal and McCaskill are two of the lawmakers that are seeking an investigation who are also co-sponsors of the I-Square bill, which would raise the base H-1B visa cap of 65000 to 195000 So you think about that for a minute. And what SCE, I'm going to call them SCE from now on, what they did was they cut about 500 IT workers after replacing them with contractors from Infosys and Tata, Tata Consultancy Services. I mean, they're two of the India-based offshore outsourcing firms that are probably the largest users of the H-1B visa. And in the letter, the senator said it was added insult to injury, that these replaced American workers and employees were actually forced to train the foreign workers who were taking their jobs. So... Um, we have some discussion about this, and you know, for many of us, we know this is a practice that seems to be really concentrated in the information technology sector. It really is. 65% of H-1B petitions approved in fiscal year 2014 were for workers in computer-related occupations. So it, there's that. And even though they have had reports that are out there that H-1B-driven layoffs have been, you know, they've been circulating that report for years. There's an increasing, um, a dramatic increase actually over the past year alone in, in getting more of those um, workers hired, those contractors hired. So the letter that we're talking about also says that the business practice of doing this raises the question, um, including regarding whether the American employees are being discriminated against. And um, there's a similar claim in that lawsuit, in a lawsuit that's now in federal court. So they're really kind of looking at um, federal agencies and asking them to examine a number of technical issues associated with uh, placing temporary foreign workers at employer work sites. And um, I think they also have uh, Ron Hira. He's an associate professor of public policy at Howard. And he recently testified before the Judiciary Committee about the visa program. And he's hoping the letter will just spur the overdue process, long overdue process, of a thorough investigation of the H-1B and L-1 guest work programs. And he feels like they've been widely abused to harm American workers. So he accused the Obama administration, and not just Obama administration, but prior administrations, of making little or no effort to correct the injustices inflicted upon hundreds of thousands of American workers. So not sure what DOJ and the Labor Department can do about the practice of replacing U.S. workers with foreign workers since it's really embedded in the IT industry, but much of this new attention is due to Grassley's elevation as Judiciary Committee Chairman, I think, and Sessions' role as head of the Immigration Subcommittee. So they kind of got their chance on the days um, to make this a prominent issue. And uh, Daniel Costa is the Director of Immigration Law and Policy Research at, at EPI, which is Economic Policy Institute. And they've also asked the Labor Department to investigate this practice. So he feels that if the federal government or the agencies say that there are legal obstacles to investigating the case or the displacement of American workers in general, that they could at least explain why it can't or won't investigate. And he said that uh, if the Department of Labor's investigation ends up being that Congress needs to change the law to give Department of Labor more enforcement authority to investigate in situations like these, then it would at least be something important for both Congress and the public to know. So kind of an interesting uh, development. We'll see how that rolls out, and if there's any feedback, maybe we'll do uh, another follow-up on that. But I see in that same vein that topic number five is about the elections, but eh, that's clearly another separate show. So can we table that? We're just going to table that. Okay, I'm getting a nod over there. We can table that. And I'm – okay, I got it. All right, so number six, and I'm thinking this might be our last topic unless something else comes up of interest – but it is the Premier Blue Cross breach and the class action, action suits. So 
this one affected us too, and a, a lot of people that we knew. In fact, some people that were not Primera Blue Cross uh, were wondering why they were even a part of this. And, and it, the reason is because it goes back to as far as 2002, apparently. But we may not see the fallout for a few years for this one. And I have to say, you know, I've seen a rise. It, it, sometimes you, you things happen, and then you think it's attributed to something else, and you kind of go, you backfill. But I really have noticed a rise recently in LinkedIn views and invitations from people with no photos, very little profile information, names that are from Nigeria or wherever places, no pictures, nothing. And some similar activity on our Facebook pages that our companies host. We have several companies, and they have several uh, Facebook pages. And so people are just kind of going to each one of them and becoming fans, and they have no profile information, no pictures, and they have these very you know interesting names, and they're from you know, you know African nation, Nigeria, whatever. Not that they're not welcome if they're legitimate people and fans. We welcome everybody. But it was just the timing of that and, and how they're trying so much to hide the information instead of being more transparent. Anyway, this one is a cybersecurity issue where the federal government warned Primera it was at risk last April, and it was weeks before they were hacked in early May. And it wasn't discovered, supposedly, until late January of this year. They stole data for $11 million current and former customers, going back to, like I said before, as far as 2002. Names, birth dates, social security numbers, addresses, bank account information, claim information, even clinical information. So now here we are, customers at risk for identity theft and bank fraud and tax fraud, which is already happening without them helping this along, and medical identity fraud. So Primera claims it didn't know exactly how the hackers got into his computer infrastructure, which doesn't make that more comforting, and certainly I don't think it's believable. But they're in the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program and handle claims for federal workers. So um, the the Inspector General for um, OPM, Office of Personnel Management, did a cyber audit, and um, they discovered a couple of things about Primera. So one of the things was that they were allowing weak passwords and they were using software so old that they were no longer supported by the vendor. And also, this software had known security problems. So, of course, Primera agrees to investigate the issues noted in the audit, but, you know, it's a little bit too little too late. I mean, you certainly have to fix the holes but so that future people aren't exposed, but the rest of us, oh well. OPM's auditors um, also warned them that several servers contained insecure configurations, and these insecure configurations could let hackers in the door, or unprivileged users can insert code that would result in privilege escalation. And so this also could grant the hackers unauthorized access to sensitive and proprietary information. And then another thing is they didn't properly um, and promptly install important updates. And so, of course, this increased the risk and vulnerability as well. So they were given about 10 recommendations to fix their computer security, and now they're battling five class action lawsuits for negligence, violations of state consumer protection laws, failure to disclose the hack to customers in a timely fashion. And we all know where that money is going to end up if they're fined. It'll be, you know, the lawyers. Now, it should be the customers, but that's the way it goes with class action suits. But anyway, uh, the investigations are happening in Washington, Oregon, Alaska. Uh, Senator Patty Murray here in Washington is the top Democrat on the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. She sent Primera a letter requesting the information about the hack, including an explanation for the delays in notifying customers. Of course, they blamed it on the outside security consultant hired to investigate the breach called Mandiant, 
and you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they were told this, but it's certainly not good advice. But they recommended against notifying customers or media before the scope of the intrusion was determined. And on second thought, not necessarily bad. But you know, they were trying to ensure the systems were secure, and they felt like uh, notifying them would alert the attackers and could prompt them to download sensitive information and further embed themselves in the system and do further harm to both Premier and its members before the situation was fixed. You know, and like I said, some validity to that, but there was an extensive delay between the breach and notifying the public. So I think we should probably have another show that talks about cybersecurity and when the public or people that have been impacted can um, reasonably uh, feel as if they're going to be informed. I, I know we have a few situations here with our business where we just get information about how the cards are going to be changed, and we try to find out who they are so that you don't do business with those people again if they are um, either if they have employees that are hacking or if they have if they're vulnerable to hacks so that you can prepare yourself. But you know, I guess banks are saying we don't know, we're just changing it, and you're protected, and so let's move on. So anyway. Um, I just think that, uh, you know, there you go. The the IT firm is under the bus, and we're under the bus, and the Primera is still in business, and uh, and so there you go, right? Um, I think that uh, they should have hired Keating Consulting Service <laughs> or Brian Morkett's firm, Audit West. Brian, if you're out there, you know, here's to you. You know, he's a great uh, cybersecurity firm, actually, and he does a lot of work with banks, and he actually hacks into uh, banks to make them aware of what their vulnerabilities are. And I'm I'm pretty sure that between, uh, you know, Keating Consulting Service and Audit West that at least, you know, some of these things that are happening, because they're very diligent, highly um, intelligent uh, principals that own those firms, I think these things could have been minimized. Anyway, um, Premier contacted affected customers. They offered us two free years of credit monitoring, identity theft protection, and a call center, and a website to provide information about the hack. So if you're out there and you're one of these people that got that letter and you think it may or may not have been you and you're not sure how your information was hacked and you're feeling a little hopeless or that it's – take advantage of it. You know, even if you don't think it's going to make a difference, take advantage of it. And if you've been notified, and you know, just keep your fingers crossed and uh, and and be diligent and keep on top of that. So, uh, I had a question from someone here that just came in from Chris about them never being Premier customers and how they could have possibly ended up there. Um, I I can't answer that. I think that we had a discussion about this, and Charles had some information about another con- company that was involved or shared information or something, but um, I we don't have that answer. But I would suggest that whatever the site is that was created by Premier, that you go to that site, and maybe that's one of those frequently asked questions. So for me, I am um, feeling a little bit froggy with all this talking. I'm usually uh, used to having breaks with talking to people and kind of taking a pause. So that's enough for me today, I think. So I'm just going to go ahead and uh, thank you for tuning in this afternoon and let you know that this broadcast is going to become a podcast shortly here. Uh, You can also find us on iTunes and um, also on Stitcher. Tune in. And, of course, you can follow us here on Facebook, backslash STR8 Talk Radio, Sam Tommy Roger, the number eight, and Talk Radio. Always appreciate your feedback we're getting. Keep it coming. We are listening. This is Donya Keating. I'm signing off at about 125 on Thursday, April 16th. 
Happy birthday to my niece, Chantel. I know you're out there. I hope you're doing well, and we will see you all next time.